Hi everyone, it's great to be with you today, even if it is just beaming at you from your computer screen. We're just over halfway through our series now on Dangerous Faith, looking at stories from the Book of Acts and how they've been encouraging us as we look to our own journeys of faith. And as we start, I just want to echo what Paul said last week about the people in these stories not being heroes or exceptional people. They were just ordinary people like you and I doing what they thought God was putting his finger on. So the question I'd like to start with today as we go through the passage and look at the video is what's in a name? And if that sounds like a familiar quote from one of your English lessons a long time ago, you're right. And we'll come to that bit a little bit later on. So today's passage is the way the early believers took steps out of their comfort zones and how they were first called Christians. We've been looking at the early church and how their experiences linked to Christians around the world who were meeting in secrets and being persecuted for their faith, and also how these stories and teachings can apply to us. So what we'll do is start by looking at the passage in Acts verses 19 to 26. If you don't have a Bible, you can download a copy of it um, onto your phone or search on the online Bibles. Or I know the office is really good if you don't have one and you'd like one. Just to email at hello at winvin.org.uk or ring the church office and we can send you a Bible so you have got one. So Acts chapter 11 verses 19 to 26. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, at Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak Greek also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people turned to the Lord and believed in him. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them to all remain true to what the Lord had revealed with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So we're going to look at the video now and uh, Nick is going to lead us through some thoughts about where the name Christian came from and how it applies to us today. The cross. It's one of the most famous symbols in the world. We're used to seeing it on churches, on the covers of books and Bibles, worn as jewellery, or even on the bumper stickers of cars. But the early church didn't use the symbol very much. They talked about the cross, of course, about its life and death message, but they didn't depict it in their art. For the early church, of course, the cross was still an instrument of torture and execution. The cities in which they lived had permanent crucifixion sites where victims were being killed on a daily basis. Many of the members of the early church followed their leader and died on the cross. Perhaps that's why the earliest Christian art features different images, anchors, fish, doves, pictures of life. In fact, the first person to draw a picture of Jesus on a cross was not a Christian at all. 
In the late 2nd century, someone scratched a crude picture into the plaster on the wall of a room in Rome. The picture shows a man being crucified and surprisingly, the crucifixion victim has the head of a donkey. Below him is a boy apparently raising his hand to worship this strange creature and underneath the artist has written in Greek Alexamenos Sebetetheon, Alexamenos worships his god. Now it's a childish drawing, which is appropriate enough because it was probably done by a schoolboy. The building was once used as a boarding school for imperial page boys and we can imagine how this drawing originated. In this school there was a boy called Alexamenos and there was something different about Alexamenos, something which caused his schoolmates to taunt and maybe even bully him, something which made them draw mocking pictures on the wall. Alexamenos was weird. Alexamenos was a Christian. It should come as no surprise that the first known picture of Jesus on the cross is a cruel mockery, because Jesus warned his followers that they'd be mocked and insulted. They would be singled out and ridiculed and called names, names like, well, like Christian. Acts chapter 11 tells us of the beginning of the church in Antioch in Syria. Christianity is spreading by now, well outside the confines of Judea and Samaria and Galilee. As they flee the persecution in Jerusalem, followers of Jesus go to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And far from being destroyed or crushed, the church starts to grow. It especially takes root in Antioch, so much so that Barnabas is sent from HQ to, to oversee things. He recruits Saul, or Paul as he'll soon be better known, and the church flourishes. And then you get to Acts 11 verse 26, which contains this tiny but very significant historical fact. It was in Antioch, Luke writes, that the disciples were first called Christians. It sort of passes us by this verse. You know, of course they were called Christians. That's what they were always called, wasn't it? Well, no. Back in Jerusalem, they were called by different names, Nazarenes, or perhaps the Eboni, which means the poor. And the way of life they followed was not called Christianity in those times, it was called simply the way. Indeed, later on in Acts, the Roman procurator Felix is described as being particularly well informed about the way. But in Antioch, they called them Christians. Now, where did they get that from? Well, the people of Antioch were a cosmopolitan bunch, and they had a strong sense of their own superiority. Antioch was, after all, the third greatest city in the Roman Empire. And they were renowned also for their scurrilous wit and invention of nicknames. And you see, that's what this name is. It's a nickname. As the people in Antioch became aware of this growing movement, some wit in an Antioch bar or, or reclining at a banquet or, or somewhere like that invented the name Christiani. It's clever really, it's a mix of two Greek words. The Greek word Christ, meaning anointed one, a name Jesus' followers certainly used. But it's also a pun on the word Krestos, which means good or useful, and which was a common name given to slaves. So you see how this works. According to the barbed wit of the people in Antioch, Jesus' followers were the Christiani, good little slaves, followers of Christ. And even though they meant it as an insult, the name stuck. As I said, Jesus warned his followers that this kind of thing would happen. Blessed are you, he said, when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And over the years, thousands, perhaps millions of Christians have been blessed in this way. Christians like Sam. 
Sam was raised as a Muslim in the Philippines, and then everything changed when he found a copy of the Gospels in his grandfather's house, and Sam became a Christian. And when his school friends found out, well, boy, did they go to town, the insults flew, friendships were withdrawn. There were times during classes when, when kids would throw their shoes at him. They wrote stuff on his uniform, filled his bag with sand, bullied him, punched him. One day, one of his former friends yelled at him, you Christians are filthy, Christians are garbage. Sam wanted to fight back, but he didn't. He found some help in an open doors discipleship program for young Christians from Muslim background. And, and he tried to live out the commands of Jesus, to love his enemies, to bless and not to curse. And, and even when he left school, he still thought of his old friends from time to time, and he prayed for them. When I remember my old friends, my heart breaks, he said. I lost them. And though they turned out to be my enemies, I, I don't hate them. Instead, I pray for them that one day they will meet my Lord Jesus and be changed. It's an everyday story, no, nothing special really, but it shows that not much has changed in 2000 years since Alexa Menos was getting pretty much the same treatment in Rome. Every day around the world, Christians get insulted, abused and lied about. In many places where Christians are the minority, followers of Jesus are the targets of lies, abuse and innuendo. One of the most extreme examples of this is Pakistan, where fabricated testimony and unfounded accusations of blasphemy can see Christians locked up or even killed. In Pakistan, Christians are called by the Urdu word Isai, derived from Issa, the Arabic word for Jesus. Now, it sounds okay, but it's a bit of a put-down. It's associated with unclean professions, demeaning occupations done by the lowest castes. And these people are so vulnerable. In Pakistan recently, a couple were reportedly burned to death in a kiln. Their crime? Well, they were Christians. And because they came from a low status background, because they couldn't read or write or defend themselves, they were just disposable. They didn't matter. Christianity is seen as disreputable, low status, attracting only the lowest of the low. And there's a very good reason for that. It's true. Christianity does attract the poor and the outcasts and the humble and the weak by the very simple reason that God loves them. The fact is that around the world, people who have no place in their society, no hope in their governments, people who have been told that they are on the lowest rung of the ladder and that's where they will always be. These are the very people who find out they have a brother and a Lord who is willing to become one of them so that they become one with him. They find out that Jesus is on their side that no matter what status society gives them, Jesus calls them sister and brother, and no wonder they think that's good news. That's a very powerful and very dangerous message because it challenges the status quo. It challenges the way that the wealthy and the powerful see the world. No wonder these people are attacked and victimized. No wonder they're abused. And we should expect to be mocked and looked down on the same. I mean, that's what people do when their worldview is threatened. But it doesn't mean we're helpless. There is much we can do to counter these messages. We can give people the tools to defend themselves. Not weapons, but information, knowledge. That's why Open Doors partners with literacy projects and employment training. And why we train Christians to defend their beliefs. And above all, we can pray for those who persecute and pray for the strength to show Christ in these moments. Paul, a man who probably attracted more insults than most, wrote that he could be content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution and calamities for the sake of Christ, for whenever I am weak, then I am strong. That's the history of Acts 11 verse 26. 
The people in Antioch thought they were being witty and clever, but 2,000 years later, there were more followers of Jesus in the world than ever before. And they all wear with pride the name that those in Antioch thought was a put-down. They're all called Christian. So there's a few reflections on the video and the passage that I'd like to share about the importance of names and how we see ourselves, about how the persecuted church cherishes the hope of the gospel and how the strength of that hope gives them and enables them to withstand the mistreatment and victimisation and how the way the early church acted can give us inspiration for sharing our own faith. Firstly, how important names are for a start. So back to that English lesson, one of the most famous lines from Shakespeare is from the play Romeo and Juliet, and it says, what's in a name, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, suggesting that it's not the name itself that gives meaning, but the substance and identity of it, an interesting thought. Do you know what your name means? Uh, I know that mine, Laura, means Lady of Victory, and in challenging moments, I keep trying to remind myself of that. When we were choosing our children's names, the meaning was really important to us. Maybe you like your name. Maybe you've never liked it. Maybe you've had someone make fun of you because of your name or what it sounds like, or what it rhymes with. My maiden name was Valens, and sometimes I got called Laura Valentine. It wasn't really super creative or even a hurtful name, but it did frustrate me sometimes because it wasn't who I was. And how many times do we feel frustrated too because of what people think the word Christian means? Religious, uptight, stuck in the mud. Rules and regulations aren't who we are. We're in a relationship with the living God. When I was teaching in London, there was a boy in my year eight class who was really big. Everyone called him Beefy and he didn't mind it or in fact, he introduced himself that way. But I couldn't bring myself to do it because I could see that there was part of him that didn't want to be identified like this. He didn't want to be identified with his size. Almost like he himself was getting in there to mock him before somebody else did it. I always felt a bit sad for him and wanted him to know that he was more than just a nickname. One of the promises we have in Jesus is that he calls us by a new name and gives us a new identity when we choose to follow him. He does say that we might be mocked because of him, but in Romans it says, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. We can link this to the kind of mocking way the Christians got their name at Antioch. As Nick said, the play on words suggests the citizens of Antioch, who thought themselves quite clever, called the Christians the Christiani, the good little slaves, almost belittling their mission and their calling. And yet God flourished their ministry there, and that influence then spread to the rest of the Roman Empire. I always remember John Wimber's famous talk, titled, I'm a fool for Christ, whose fool are you? suggesting that there will always be people who think that anything other than the status quo is weird or foolish. Nick again says in the video that we should expect to be mocked and looked down on because our beliefs, because that's what happens when anyone's worldview is threatened. In our situation, 
Perhaps it's how we bring up our children and what we let them watch. Other parents might think we're too old-fashioned and over-strict. Or maybe it's how you refuse to gossip at work or drink too much at parties when everyone else is offering you more. Maybe friends don't invite you to things because they know you wouldn't approve of the things that are happening or they feel uncomfortable because their morals are different to yours. In these times when we think about our brothers and sisters going through horrendous persecution in other countries, where they're not just sneered at or spoken about behind their backs, or left out of things but beaten, mocked, ostracised from their friends and family, we can take strength and maybe let it galvanise us to remember what it is about being a follower of Jesus, what being called a Christian can mean. Nick reminds us that Christianity attracts the poor and the humble, those who might lose their jobs and their rights because of being called a Christian. They have no hope in the government and no opportunity for growth in a class system that reduces them to who they are in the eyes of the world. How amazing then for them to hear the good news that the God of the universe loves them. As the scout motto goes, always be prepared. So we should therefore expect and be prepared for us to be mocked and looked down on. And as Nick said, what tools and knowledge do we need to defend our faith? Is it a case of the tools of forgiveness and grace to bless those who persecute us? Is it the tool of the knowledge that God loves the people who are mocking our belief system and that while the words that they use may hurt us, Ultimately, when we become Christians, our identity is in him. Or another way to put it is that we identify with Jesus. He was mocked for believing he was the son of God. He was ridiculed when he forgave people's sins. In the Beatitudes, when Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you he knew all of the ways in which you might be looked down on teased made fun of left out because of believing in him and he gives us something to hold on to knowing that our reward will be great in heaven Delayed gratification is something that many of us don't have to practice anymore in our culture with our internet access to the internet, digital photos where we see what's happened straight away, take out from a tap on our phones. But this promise shows us that walking with Jesus is always worth it. So let's go back to the passage. One of the things that we can consider when we think about how to apply this to our day-to-day life is that it took some stepping out from the norm or accustomed way of doing things to push the disciples to consider other people groups rather than just the Jews. We know that they were persecuted and this caused the church to scatter and spread through the ancient world. Jesus knew that it would happen and even talked about it as we mentioned in the Beatitudes. But in Acts chapter 11 verse 20, it talks about some of the believers who had come from Cyrene and Cyprus, part of the Greek speaking world, not wanting to stop at just speaking about Jesus to the Jewish people. Their hearts were that everyone in their communities would be saved, 
and so they took a risk and started sharing. We can see that God was in that as we see more and more people coming to Jesus. What might that look like in our lives? Are there people that we have discounted as wanting to know more about Jesus because they're not like us or they're too ensconced in their belief system? I know I've done that in the past. Ironically, my dad's side of the family is all Jewish and they think that when my father married my mother, who is not Jewish, uh, they left the fold and all became goyim, which is a kind of disparaging term for anybody who's not really practicing the Jewish faith. They don't patronize us, us because of it, but kind of dismiss us as something and people who have not really anything relevant to do with them. But I'm praying for God to give me more opportunities to share. Who's on your heart that you would love to see come to Jesus in your family or in your neighborhood? One of the things that also struck me in the passage was that Barnabas went where God was moving. He heard a report and went to check it out. And when he got there, the message version of the passage says he threw himself in with them, got behind them, urging them to stay with it for the rest of their lives. He was a good man that way, enthusiastic and confident in the Holy Spirit's ways. And God has given us the ability to be enthusiastic and passionate about the Holy Spirit's ways in all of the different aspects of our faith. And today I sense that God maybe wants to restore some confidence and enthusiasm that perhaps has been lost in these last few months as we've been locked down. Maybe things have been tough and you feel like you've lost a bit of sparkle. Maybe you've not had space to hear from God about what he's doing and where you should be focusing your attention. I feel like the Lord wants to say there's grace for you as he longs to refresh you, to give you new direction and passion for what he's calling you to do. So as we listen to what God has to say to us from the passage and the video, there are some key points to think of as we look beyond our own circumstances so that we can bear the burdens with our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church. For example, we can pray that God will be with them and that they are able to bear that ridicule and mockery with patience and grace. We can pray that they will find ways to gain independence, that where they are literally slaves, either to the culture around them, hemming them in from revealing their true identity, or because of their working conditions that they are literally a slave, that they would find justice, independence, and they would know that they are beloved of God. So as we come to a close, think again about what's in a name. Do we wear our title of Christian, follower of Jesus, disciple of Jesus proudly? Are we on the inside, what it says on the tin, on the outside that we are? As we go through this week, let us think about that, a deeper sense of what it means to be called by the name of the Saviour that we love. We'll close in prayer and then we'll hand back to the team for ministry. So Lord, help us to not be afraid to stand out from the crowd and to be ready to give an explanation of our faith with love and kindness. Help us to show the values of your kingdom, not of the world around us. Holy Spirit, would you give us confidence and enthusiasm for your word and to reveal the person of Jesus. Come and be with us now. We pray in your precious name. 
Amen.